History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this special bonus episode, Road Trip 2017. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing how far we've come since Natchez, which will include San Antonio, Texas. And right now we are currently in New Orleans. So far, Denise, what has been your favorite part of the trip? Wow, there's been so many great things, but one of my favorite things was going to Jill's ranch. Yes, Denise's highlight has been Jill's place. But before we got to Jill's place, we told y'all that we were going into Houston and we got to meet up with Kathleen Shanahan Maka, who joined us on the Hotel Galvez episode. And we had a great time having dinner and just talking and sharing. So shout out to you, Kathleen. Great meeting you and your friend Eileen. And then we also got to meet... We got to meet up with Patsy, who is a long, long time friend of mine, over 30 years, and also one of my great mentors. So it was really fantastic seeing her as well. And then we set off for San Antonio, Texas. So we checked into our campsite, and then we headed off for Jill's Ranch. And then we went to the Natural Bridge Caverns, and Jill joined us for that. It was amazing. The formations... The stalactites, the stalagmites, the columns, the, I guess they called them drapery or curtains. They look like ribbons in the air. It was just amazing what the earth can create when you leave it alone. Yes, it was very, very, very pretty. And we really enjoyed that. And then we also got to buy a bag of dirt and Jill and I found lots of pretty gems in my dirt. Yes, if there is a bag of dirt that Denise can buy and then sift through it to find precious little treasures, she's going to do it. So that was a lot of fun. Then we got to go back and we got to see Jill's farm and it was great. We got to meet her sheep and the goats that were there. We met a bunch of her horses. We got to see the donkeys. We got to see a bunch of little bunny rabbits. There were turkeys, chickens, roosters, ducks, hummingbirds. It was like a petting zoo, especially made for Denise. Yes, it was very, very cool. And Jill got this huge rooster out. And so I got to pet the rooster. None of the bunnies would let me pet them. But then right as we were getting ready to leave, one of my favorite, favorite birds ever are hummingbirds. And all of a sudden, Jill goes casually, oh, there's the hummingbirds. I'm like, the what? And you could hear them, I guess, humming past you. And they were just hovering there and they just kept coming back and kind of chasing each other off of the feeder. But it was that was amazing. That evening, we were supposed to go on a ghost tour in a neighborhood in San Antonio. And we got a call from the tour guide that his father had passed away a few hours before that. So it was very unfortunate, obviously, for him to lose his dad. So we didn't get to do that ghost tour So then Jill took us to a local eatery that she enjoys that had Italian food and we shared a pizza and just got to get to know each other. And it's really cool when we get to do that and we get to meet you guys face to face because we hear from a lot of you that you feel like you know us and that we're friends and everything. And we are, but it's kind of a one way conversation for us because we don't have you guys that we're listening to and hearing about talking to unless we get you on with us. 
and then we could pick your brains and get to know you a little bit better. So it's so cool when we get to meet you in person because then we can do that. So we did. We picked Jill's brain and found out all kinds of things about her that we won't share with everybody. (laughs) Oh, that'll start some rumors. It wasn't anything bad. It was just some personal stuff about Jill and, and her life. So that was a lot of fun. She'd been coughing a lot while we were in the caverns and saying that she thought perhaps it was allergies. And uh, well, no, it wasn't. We had left Tiana's leash at Jill's place. So we had to stop by there the next day and we picked up the leash and then we set off to see Lyndon B. Johnson's ranch and I guess what they call the Texas White House. Is that? And that was very cool. We got to go through the house there and Anytime you're walking through a place that used to be a president's house, it's just cool to think, wow, a president used to sit here and decide, you know, make major decisions right over there and very cool. But Diane left out a very, very important part. Between picking up Tiana's leash and heading up to Lyndon B. Johnson's ranch, Jill met us at the front gate with a leash and two baby ducklings. And so we got to hold the little ducklings before we went up to the ranch. And that was really fun. Then Denise and I headed up to Austin and we got to see the state capitol and we love to go to the capitals of all the states and we are going to start putting a separate pin in our little travel map for those locations and so that was cool. We saw a bunch of the old buildings that are down there. We got to see the Driscoll. For those of you who follow us on Instagram or are part of Spooktacular crew, you got to see pictures of that. We took video all over the inside which we'll be putting together for the executive producers It is one of the most beautiful hotels I've ever seen on the inside. Spectacular and amazing. Then we hiked over to the bridge where we got to watch the bats. Now, at this time of the year, it wasn't as cool as it probably is, say, in August. Right, because this time of the year, the bats have their babies with them. So they they were swirling right under us. And the place we were on the the Congress um, Street Bridge or Congress Park Bridge was perfect because they were literally coming out right under us so we would just see hundreds of bats just making like a circle and we could hear them we could even smell the kind of ammonia smell from the bat guano bat poop for those who don't know what guano is so that was really cool but once the babies can leave they said it's really spectacular because it's just like a cloud leaving from under the bridge and they go further away from the bridge but the mamas were staying close which I understand yeah, so we it wasn't as spectacular as we thought it was going to be, but it was still was really cool to just see hundreds of bats just swarming underneath you. The next day, we headed off for all of the missions and to see the Alamo. And that was very cool because Denise got a whole bunch of stamps that I'm sure she's going to tell you about. Well, Jill was supposed to join us for the whole day and that cough that we mentioned that she thought was allergies. When she went to the doctor, it was actually walking pneumonia and bronchitis. So Jill, who has been planning all this time to hang out with us and has been making plans with Denise and we made sure to get a camp that was near her ranch because we were going to be leaving Tiana at her place and stuff. Wow. Talk about having a wrench thrown into the works. And I know Jill was bummed. We were bummed. And we had two ghost tours set up that she was supposed to go on. The first one was canceled. And then the second one, and I don't blame her, if I had walking pneumonia, I wouldn't want to walk around on a ghost tour either. What did you think of the Alamo, Denise, when we when we got up to it? And I, I'd heard this before, but I, I guess it just kind of shocks you. It's kind of the same thing that I've heard about Graceland, even though I haven't seen it, is it's smaller than you expect. Right. And a lot of people mistakenly think the picture that you see of the Alamo is, is that's just the front entrance. You go in and it was a whole fort and it it even 
is very interesting because it didn't just take up the land that it's still on. When you're walking around the city of San Antonio, you'll see like little markers in the sidewalk and that will be kind of signifying how far the battle spread out and how far the fort spread out. So it goes well beyond where what's still there to, for people to tour. And at the missions, it's very, very cool. For those of you who know, I love to get my stamps in my National Parks Passport book. Well, at the missions, not only do they have the stamp for the San Antonio Missions National Historic Park that you can put in with the date and get, oh, I got my official stamp. They have a stamp at each individual mission of the four missions, and they're little little replicas of the mission. So I was able to put that in my extra stamp locations, and it was very, very cool. So it was a happy nerd day for Denise. (laughs) Then that night, we got to meet our listener, Kathy Franco, and her husband. They met up with us for the ghost tour that we did down in the downtown San Antonio area, and it was really good. We had a great tour guide, Lily awesome storyteller. It was just, she was magnificent. Not only was this basically her hometown, but she, you could tell that she loved history. And she did the little thing during the ghost tour that I love is when you're going between places, not every place has to be haunted or have some kind of legend about it for you to tell us about it or to talk about it. And she would stop at a place and say, look up at that window and you'd look and see all this beautiful stained glass and everything. And so you're waiting for her to tell you ghost story. And then she goes, I just think that's a really cool window. I pass it all the time. I like to point it out to people. And it was a lot of places along the way that she would just say, I just want to tell you a little bit about the history here. And we were a smaller group. So I don't know if she did some extra things that she doesn't normally do. But we got to go into what is considered one of the most haunted hotels, as we always giggle about that, in not only San Antonio, but in Texas, the Manger Hotel, which we're going to do a whole episode dedicated to it because there's so much information there. We got to talk to people who work there. But she took us inside and told us a lot of personal stories that she's had and that she's heard from other people. And so we got to take pictures inside and get a feel for it, see if we could see anything. So that was great. Yes. And I had actually been in because Tiana and I had to stay out of the Mingo Hotel because they don't allow dogs in. So we stayed out and waited. But I'd gone in earlier because if anybody's visiting the area you can go into the front desk there and get an actual copy of a lot of the ghost stories there. And so I'll be sharing some of that because both of the people I talked to at the front desk had had experiences of their own. And so we'll be sharing those on the episode on the Menger Hotel. But it was just very cool. And that was one of our tips from our listener, Kathleen. So thank you very much, Kathleen. When you met us in Houston for that little tidbit, it helped a lot. And for people who've been listening to the show, you know that we've done the Emily Morgan Hotel. So we got to go and see the outside of that. We didn't go inside, but it's just cool to see these locations in person because we always say at the end of the show, oh, I'd love to see that. And so we got to. And then we also got to see the Sheridan Gunter Hotel, which was at a distance, but it was still like, wow, that, that hotel over there we did an episode about. And the night of our tour, it was a full moon. So it was really kind of cool to be out with one of our listeners listening to creepy stories walking around San Antonio with a beautiful full moon in the sky. Nothing creepy happened. We didn't get anything weird in any of our pictures, but it was a really great time. So we highly recommend Grim Sisters Ghost Tours in San Antonio. Excellent. And Lily was just spectacular. 
we also got to go down on the river walk and we were just trying to find an eatery to have lunch down there. It's beautiful. The river walk is amazing if you're ever in San Antonio, but we needed to find a restaurant that would allow Tiana to eat there. So we saw this restaurant with all these beautiful, colorful umbrellas over the table and it looked like it might have sort of that Tex-Mex Mexican flair to it, which is what we wanted in San Antonio. Sure enough, they would take Tiana and they happen to be the oldest restaurant on the Riverwalk. So it was like a double score. So that was really fun too. Yeah, it was called Casario and really great food. Then we headed off for New Orleans, but we stopped in Lafayette along the way. And I just put in Haunted Lafayette to see if there was any places that were haunted in this city. And lo and behold, they have one of the books that's in my collection. So we hunted around that evening right after we set up camp and we managed to find that. So I was thrilled about that. So another book full of haunted locations. Then we got to New Orleans. And so we decided one of the first things we needed to do when we got to New Orleans is head down to the French Quarter and get some food. And we found a place not real dog friendly down there, but we had gone into a dog boutique, I guess, and asked the young lady there if she could suggest anything. She goes, well, I don't really know, but I know the charter house that's up the way. I've seen dogs in there. So we walked up about a half block and sure enough, they said, yeah, you can just sit on one of the outside. They're not like outside of the restaurant, but they open all the doors. So you're kind of outside, which was good because it had been raining and everything. So we got to sit there and then we looked at the menu and oh my gosh, they had a sampler so that you could get four different tastes. Yes. So that's exactly what we needed. So we were able to get crawfish etouffee. We were able to get jambalaya, red beans and rice and gumbo. And we got boudin as an appetizer. And we both concluded that, wow, we've tried that. Don't have to do it again. But all the other ones, we tried that. And let's keep eating it as often as possible. It was really yummy. Denise loves New Orleans food. So she was in seventh heaven. My favorite thing out of the sampler was the crawfish. Now, we've heard it pronounced all different ways. We've heard from the locals that it's supposed to be etouffee, right? We've always said it as etouffee. But one of we's, before they knew what it was, called it etouffee. But I was thrilled because the other time that we've been in New Orleans, we just went to the Jazz Fest and we didn't really get to see much of anything. I think we walked past Bourbon Street or something, but I don't remember a lot of it. But I was, I broke out in hives the whole time. And so I was like, I must be allergic to something. I don't know what it was, if something had been biting me or whatever. The only thing I could conclude was that it had to be the crawfish because it was the only thing I'd never had before. So I tried it again this time and I was like, oh, please don't let me break out. And I didn't. So now I'm going to be eating crawfish all the time. Sounds good to me. Then that night we went with Haunted History Tours, which is, I believe they're the oldest tour here in New Orleans. And they are basically number one. And we thought we wanted to do something different because we knew we were going to do a ghost tour, which is coming tomorrow night. And so we, I said, Denise, let's, let's try a vampire tour. That sounds kind of fun. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking vampire tour, it's probably hokey, cheesy, touristy, something like that. I, I wasn't really expecting much from it. I thought it was going to be kind of like our Boston Ghosts and Gravestones. Yes. And I had researched to try to find one. And they did mention in the, on the website that it's going to be mostly folklore because they don't really have a lot of history but along with the folklore that we were going to visit real locations where it was kind of like our show, it was up to us to decide what we thought about it. I have to say out of all the ghost tours that we've done, the vampire tour was creepier than any ghost tour we've ever done. 
the stories that were told. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was related to true crime. And so you're thinking, wow, that's really weird. Even if these aren't vampires involved, there's some really weird people involved for sure. So we go down to Jackson Square to meet our tour guide. It had a handlebar mustache and he just looked the part. And his name was Gwydion. And so I'm just expecting absolutely nothing. It was one of our top five tours of all time. He was amazing. Not only did we get everything that Denise mentioned there, but he talked about the funerary practices, burial practices. So you get a feel for, a lot of you may be aware that in New Orleans, when they have a funeral, they have what they call is a second line. And that's the group of musicians that are usually behind the funeral procession that are playing music and almost making it like a party kind of thing. And I don't think a lot of people know the origins of why there is a second line there. And it, when it first started, wasn't a bunch of musicians making beautiful music and jazz behind this procession. It was meant to do something else. A lot of times it was the children and the people, but they would be banging pans and making a lot of racket and a lot of noise. They would be going through the city in all different topsy-turvy ways and then making all the noise. And it was to confuse the spirit so that it could not find its way back to the house if it happened to rise, if it if the person happened to be a vampire in rose and come back so they could not find the family to come back to basically feed on. Yeah, so they really had a superstition about revenants and that your family member, even though you loved them and they loved you, could come back and attack you because it's said that the blood of someone that you are related to or that you love is sweeter than a stranger's blood. So that's one of the reasons why they're more attracted to coming after a family member. So like Denise said, they wouldn't just have a straight line down the street. They would wind all through the city hoping to confuse the spirit. And then, of course, as she said, if that didn't work, then they hoped to distract him with the noise. Now, if that still didn't work, it was really strange. They would put the house key around the neck of their dead family member. I'm thinking if you don't want them to come home, don't give them a key to the lock. Maybe they thought they wouldn't be able to find their way home. But if they did, there was one other precaution that they would take. They would completely redo the locks and turn them upside down. So we got to see a couple of locks in the city that were still turned upside down that way. And that was a, a big deal that you'd have to unsolder it, solder it back up and everything. Yeah, they weren't like modern day locks. I just wanted to backtrack just a little bit is with them going through the city. If any of you have ever been to the French Quarter, it would be very easy to confuse somebody because you turn down one street and go another and you're lost. At least we were. Well, and I was doing my best to avoid Bourbon Street. I said, we have to go on Bourbon Street just because that's what you got to do when you're in the French Quarter. But I'm an introvert. I don't like a lot of partying and noise. We don't drink. So I lasted about two blocks and then I was running. And I remember Patrick Keller from the Big Seance podcast. I told him when he had visited New Orleans, oh, I'm so jealous. I can't wait to go. And he said, you know, I didn't really like New Orleans because he's a lot like me. He's like the energy there just, he goes, it was unsettling to me. And so he goes, I really didn't enjoy it because it was just too much for me. And I totally was like, I understand what he's saying because you get down near Bourbon Street and unless you're a young something who likes to party, it's like, get me out of here. And our guide was awesome at kind of keeping us away from those loud areas and stuff and taking us to some of the, I don't know, quieter areas. He shared a lot of the history about vampirism, 
we've discussed it on the show before, why people thought that somebody had been attacked by a vampire consumption. They didn't really understand how that worked. So it seemed like maybe a family member was attacking and drawing the life out of somebody, whereas it was just a disease that was wasting this person away. He talked about a lot of the lore when it comes to what do you have to do to get rid of a vampire or why are there certain things in regards to vampires that have become part of the lore, like they can't go in the sunlight. That all started because Nostaroftu, they didn't know how to end the movie. They wanted to do something different than Bram Stoker's Dracula because they were being sued for copyright. And the guy who was playing the vampire in that Nostaroftu, they pulled back the blinds and the light bothered him and he put his hands up against it. And some of you may have heard some of the oddities about that guy that they wonder if he wasn't maybe a little, I don't know, vampiric, but strange. But anyway, I gave the director an idea and he thought sunlight is purifying. This will be great. He can't handle the sun. It makes him disappear. And before you know it, it became part of the lore that a vampire cannot go into sun. But there's nothing in any of the actual lore out there that says that. There's also nothing that says that you have to use a wooden stake. They normally would use iron bars. And iron is really a protector against even ghosts and vampires. And you would want something big enough not only to just go through the heart to kill them in that way, but to stake them to the ground so they could get back up. We've also seen, and I know you guys have seen, and we've had posted in the Spooktacular crew that they sometimes would jam huge rocks into their mouths so that they couldn't get their mouths, you know, closed over a neck and, and suck blood and things like that as well. He talked a little bit about Vlad Dracul. And then we went to locations in the city. And it, that was great. I don't know how many of you know of the legend of, I call him the Count of St. Germain, but here in New Orleans, they call him Jacques St. Germain. And for anybody who doesn't know, this is a man who kept showing up in history throughout the centuries. And it always was this guy who looked the same, 30s, 40s, something like that, age-wise, a little bit of gray on the side of his hair, black hair, and very youthful, vibrant, strong, strange, secretive, short, about five feet. And he would just keep popping up. So a lot of people have wondered, is this guy a time traveler? And the stories that I remember as a kid was that he was some kind of time traveler. Well, here in New Orleans, it's not that he's time traveling. It's that he's lived for how many years did he say? Like 4,000 years, was it? And so the reason why he's able to live is perhaps because he's undead and feeding off of people, particularly young women. And well, not just any young women. How about prostitutes? And the way that he was found out, we were taken to a corner house and we'll post some pictures when uh, Denise gets her camera pictures up and everything for people to see these. But he built this enormous house on the corner there. What had happened is he had a young woman there who was a prostitute. She was naked. She managed to break out of a window and she fell off the balcony. And in the process, she broke her leg in the street. Well, men came running to help her, and they noticed that she was slashed on several parts of her body. And these would be key parts where you would basically bleed out. So we're talking in the neck area, in your arm, your legs. So she was very close to death by the time they got the police there. And she told them that this man here had tried to kill her by sucking her blood. And what had happened is he'd brought her home, and he took her upstairs, and there was this beautiful mirror that was sitting there. And he had all of these little trinkets or something that he had been collecting throughout his life. And so she was overlooking at all these little baubles and things. 
And he said, oh, I'm going to go get comfortable, wash up. Well, she looks in the mirror and she sees him coming at her from behind and he's got some kind of a blade. And she said he moved so fast, it was inhuman. He was upon her in no time, slashing at her. And he had strength like she had never felt before. So she passed away there on the street. So the police decide that they need to go talk to this Jacques St. Germain and find out what's going on here. So they get there. He explains to them, no, 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 no. What, what you men have seen, that's, that's not what's going on. I wasn't trying to drain her blood or get her blood from her, or sucking on her blood, anything like that. And I'll convince you that I'm innocent by, and then he starts passing out the money and some liquor. He's like, here's my statement. And so for each of the policemen, he's giving them his statement, which is basically some bills and some alcohol. And then he tells them, tomorrow morning, I'll come down to the police station and I'll give my statement to the chief as well. Yes, because he kept telling them that he needed, that his very expensive house, and it's a beautiful, beautiful home in the French Quarter, since she'd gone flying out of the window, it was broken and he needed to secure his home so nobody would rob him of all his valuables. So he needed to take care of his home first, but he would come do the statement. But when they were saying no, that he needed to come now, that's when he started buttering their palms a little bit. Well, so the next day they were waiting for him to show up for the chief. And finally the chief said, no, go get him. This is ridiculous as the time clicked away. And when they got there, the door was open. It was obvious that somebody had left in a hurry and things were just thrown everywhere. And they found where rugs had been replaced in kind of odd patterns. But underneath the rugs, there were huge brown spots that were probably about the size as if somebody had completely bled out a human body. And there were several of those. And they also found brown splatters up on the wall and ceiling as if something had been hit with arterial blood spray to get it that high. And Jacques St. Germain was nowhere to be seen ever again, at least not in New Orleans. So they lost their man and he made it out of there. Supposedly he shows up in Europe again. Same description, same claims of being 4,000 years old and same thing with people just disappearing in the city when he's there. So was he really a vampire? Who knows? Did he really exist? St. Germain, it seems to me like he must exist in history. But is it just a legend? Is it his name that is carried on through generations that are different St. Germains who happen to look the same? Was this a time traveler? Was he a vampire? That is for you to decide. And they told us lots of stories, which we don't want to share all of them. But the other one that for me was the creepiest, and it was what the tour ended with. And I was like, so ready to be like, ah, get me out of this dark and lonely street. We were on a street where there was nobody. In the French Quarter, I don't think there's any streets where there's nobody hanging out. This place was called the Ursuline Convent. What happened here is the way that New Orleans got started was very similar to Australia. And the governor in New Orleans was asking the French king to send people, colonists, because you can't really have a city and grow it without people. So what they decided to do was to send a bunch of convicts and prisoners to come to New Orleans to set up this new city. Now, there were Native Americans in the area. And you have to think you've got all of these convicts that have come here that are male. No females came with them. So what do you think happened? Uh, yes, the male convicts noticed that the female Native Americans were attractive 
And so they were trying to get those women to come be with them, and this started a lot of problems. Especially since this particular tribe happened to be engaged in cannibalism. So while they were wanting the girls for one thing, the girls were wanting them, but not for the same purpose. They were wanting them more to, like, eat them. So that wasn't working out. So the governor contacts the king and says, um, could you send me some women? The king says, okay, I'll send you some women, but they're going to be convicts as well. So women from the prison were sent, but he didn't send very many. And you've got a ton of men, only a few women. And then it was this whole forced marriage thing. That didn't work out very well. So he contacts the king again and says, could you send us some women who aren't convicts that will get these guys to toe the line right. Because, of course, if you put female convicts with male convicts, they're all still committing a bunch of crimes. Yes, so he was asking for more wholesome women. Well, the king took him literally or was joking around or who knows. But here come all the convicts, the colonists, down to the port. And they're so excited to see all of these women that are getting off the boat. And here they all come wearing habits. He sent a bunch of nuns. Of course, they were going to get those men in line. And they did, but that obviously isn't taking care of the problem that they need to have some women in the city. So once again, they ask the king, the governor says, please, can you send us some women and don't make it nuns this time? So we have the final time. Here they come. There was like six women that get off. But before that, there's two other nuns that get off. So they're thinking, oh, no, not again. Then these six women get off and they look emaciated, very sickly. They're not sure what's wrong with them, but they just are not healthy. And then there were 13 trunks of their belongings that came with them as well. But these trunks were a little different than other trunks. As a matter of fact, they had an odd shape rather than being shaped what we would consider trunk-like. They were shaped more like what we would consider coffin-like. Well, they were put in this storage room that's in the convent. Nobody knows for sure to this day, but it is believed that there were vampire females in those coffins. And these women came to be known as the casket girls. Now, all of a sudden, people started disappearing in the city. Lots of bloodless bodies were being found. That's why people started thinking that those coffin-shaped boxes were holding more than just belongings. So they decided that they needed to bless the the area that they were kept in and to lock it away for good they blessed each of the nails and it's on the top floor there's like was it three levels and the very top one has these shutters that would open that you could get a cross breeze through because it would get very hot up there and so anything that would be stored up there they'd want to run up there quick to grab it and they cataloged everything very well so that they could do that because it was just too hot to be up there well they kind of didn't catalog really well of what was in the trunks they cataloged everything else and so that adds more to the mystery of why when they keep such amazing records of everything they have was there no record of what those were so they nailed these shutters closed with sacred blessed nails they nailed closed the door that's to the storage room and to this day no one can enter that area the catholic church the vatican will not tell anybody what is being stored there Nobody's even allowed to go up to that third floor. You can be on the first and second level, but not up there. And if you even attempt to go to the third floor, even if you don't get up there, even if you don't see anything up there, 
you will be banned from that building, and it's a museum now, you will be banned for life. Now, the creepiest part of this story comes when we look at the house that's across the street from this convent, and it's the Beauregard house. It's the Beauregard Keys house, and there were some ghost hunters that went in there because apparently this location is haunted. They had a couple of young ladies with them that were novices that were kind of in training interns, if you will. And they said, well, we'll go ahead and train you on how to do a lot of this investigation. Well, these girls had heard the stories about the convent that's right across the street. And they'd heard stories that those shutters would be seen open, especially between, was it midnight and 4 a.m.? I think that was the time. And remember, these had been nailed shut, but they actually have pictures of them open that people have taken with their cell phones and stuff on the street. But of course, that's denied emphatically by the Vatican and the Catholic Church. But the girls had heard the story and ghost investigation can be a little bit on the boring side as you're just sitting there night after night. So they decided to retrain their cameras elsewhere. So they put the cameras directly on those shutters to see if they could catch anything during the night. And it sounded like the story that we were told that the girls were outside doing this while the professional, quote unquote, ghost hunters were inside doing their thing investigating the building. The evening comes to an end. The ghost hunters come outside and they can't find the girls anywhere. The camera has been knocked off of whatever stand they had it on and there's no sign of the girls. So they go to the police directly and say, something has happened. We don't know, but they just disappeared. Well, the cops are like, okay, it's been nine hours. You got to wait 48 hours. It's the French Quarter. They probably went off and got drunk and are sleeping it off somewhere or hooked up with somebody. So they didn't didn't want to hear anything about it. They weren't going to investigate it. So the ghost hunters decided to look at the video camera to see what they caught. And it's just boring, trained on the, the shutters. And then all of a sudden... There's a jostling of the cameras if something rushes it and it gets knocked down and then it goes dead. They show this to the police and the police get worried because obviously it looks like something has happened. The girls appear to have maybe been attacked in some way. Well, they don't find the girls for two days and then their bodies just appear on the steps to the convent, naked and drained of all their blood. I'm going to see if I can find some newspaper articles that will back that up. Because that has to be the creepiest thing I've ever heard. Because you're moving from a, an old story of lore into something that is a modern day story that seems to be indicating that something is draining the blood of these women at this convent. And he said, if you ever look up there and even see those shutters open a crack, I'd be running. And when I looked up there, it almost looked like the one shutters, because all of them, you could tell they were sealed shut. But the ones I was like, well, that one looks like it's got kind of a little bit of an opening to it. So I was like, oh, get me away from here. Yes. And that's the one thing with the vampire tour. It really, really creeped me out just because so many of the stories, well, a lot of them were older stories. But like Diane said, they were based on true crime events that happened in the city and so that gets it a little bit more I don't know real and then we got to walk back to our car through all the French Quarter and then down street so it was lovely. Then today we went on a tour of the Garden District just a history architectural tour and that was fascinating we did that with two chicks walking tour and we actually didn't have a chick. Nope our chick's name was Richard but he was very knowledgeable and we got to go through the Lafayette Cemetery so cool to get to see that. And I think most people probably know in New Orleans, 
the way they practice their burials, the way that it's above ground because their water table is so close. It's about four feet down and you got to go six feet with a body and they'd put a body down there and they figured, oh, well, it doesn't matter if there's water in there. We'll just stuff the body down and it'll get in there. Well, then as the water would rise because New Orleans floods quite a bit, up comes the body because, of course, it's not real dirt here. It's more of a sand and they would have grandma floating back down to the house in her coffin. And so they're like, that's not working. Most of the bodies that are here in New Orleans are buried above the ground in mausoleums, basically, or crypts. And they share crypts and they put a body in there for a year and a day and they let it cook throughout the summer. Gets to be about 150 degrees in a crypt. And so the body decomposes very quickly. They open it up. They brush the bones and the ash that are left behind to the back. And then it's ready for another body or they open it up. Basically, they open it whenever the next person dies. But they want to wait a year and a day because they don't want to open it up on somebody's death date because that's just bad luck. Well, we also found out something I did not know is that the walls that go around these cemeteries are six feet thick. And it's so that they could put bodies in them if there's not room in the crypts because they already have a quote unquote body cooking, especially if they had yellow fever running through. It was you didn't have enough room. So they would put these bodies in a kind of like a condo for a little bit. And then they would either brush the bodies back there and they were all part of the wall together or then they could transfer them over to the family crypt later on to finish the process or just sweep their remains there. So they could bury a lot of family members in one of those crypts. And we got to see one of them open so that you could see where they would have one on top and one on the bottom because most crypts could hold two. Then from our tour with the of the Garden District, and I thought the Garden District was just beautiful. We got to see a couple of houses that Anne Rice had remodeled and lived in. Uh, Sandra Bullock's house here in New Orleans. Then we headed out to the Chalmette Battlefield, I think is how you say it. And this is where the Battle of New Orleans took place. And this was during the War of 1812. I think we did uh, This Day in History on it because I remember, or maybe it was one of the shows that we've done that's on a location in New Orleans, but I remember that we'd said the thing that really stinks about the Battle of New Orleans is it didn't really have to happen because the war was already over, but they didn't know. Word had not gotten to them yet. And this is where Andrew Jackson had a wonderful defeat of the British and it helped pave the way for him to get into the presidency. So we got to see, and it's amazing when you see these battlefields because they're just beautiful. And you think at one time there were men just dying, tons of them, especially on the British side. I think the Americans only lost 20 something, but the British lost 4,000, something like that. And you see all these live oaks that are everywhere on the battlefield that are huge. And you know, they've got to be 300 years old or more. Those trees saw the battle. It just is amazing. Yes, it was very sobering to think that we're looking at this beautiful green field and when you just like see the pictures or you think about it and you had, you know, just all this bloodshed out there and it was beautiful and very sad at the same time. And then we ended the day with beignets. But Diane forgot to mention before we headed to the battlefield, we had shrimp po' boys and some more gumbo. Oh, that's right. So we've had a little bit of everything that you could possibly want to get in New Orleans. Tomorrow we'll have another tour in the French Quarter, which is a historical one. And then we're going to have our ghost tour in the French Quarter. So, of course, we'll have some more stuff to share with you guys there. And then we'll be home very shortly. All right. Well, that was another shout out from us on the road. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye bye. 
Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.